This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron. I'm one of your hosts, Wayne Chang. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Imogen Jinjo. And in this episode, we'll be finally, <laughs> finally, taking an expedition into the jungles of Kabara. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, for uh, new listeners and old listeners, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we finally gotten around to Kabara, <laughs> and then uh, we hope it's worth the wait. Um, just before we start uh, our regular thing and, and talking about references, um, we do have a little bit of a, a sponsorship thing. So we'd like to take this opportunity to announce uh, a brand new sponsor, our first sponsor to the show, and that sponsor is KB Presents. Uh, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with KB Presents, uh, it's the D&D and Eberron publishing imprint of Together Studios um, that is run by Keith Baker and Jen Ellis. And... It's a developer of books such as Exploring Eberron by Keith Baker, uh, and it's now available, which is now available on DM's Guild. And, and, and I just, Baker I just got to say, around, I am impressed that we managed to land that guy. Uh, I think it's a big <laughs> deal that, that they decided to promote, you know, to to sponsor our show. But yeah, uh, I mean, but he yeah, took a lot of time off of his. Uh, he took a lot of time off of his writing his uh, children's. Yeah, books, yeah, right? of course, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so. Uh, that's our new sponsor, and uh, now let's get into the episode. So, we've got some references for Kabara. Uh, we know a lot of people uh, have been actually as- asking for us uh, for this episode, and we really want to kind of get get into it. We've, and I know Keith's gotten a lot of questions about it. So, a couple of references: uh, Dungeon One Eighty Two and One Eighty Five, Backdrop of Kabara and uh, Poison Dusk and Black Sun episodes. Um, those are actually available on uh, – those are four ebooks uh, available on DMs Guild if you want to go pick them up and, and look at them. Uh, or you might have a copy of them from before. And we've got a couple more epi- – we had a couple more uh, articles from uh, that Keith Baker guy again. Mm-hmm. Um, so Keith has run a couple campaigns in Kabara. Um, he's got an episode about Lizard, uh, lizard Dreams and uh, On the Edge of Hope. Hope is one of the, city, uh, the towns that we're going to talk about, Building a Foundation. Um, you may see the re- reoccurring reoccurring thing about dreams and Keith here. So yeah, so you know, certainly kind of just speaking to those, the uh, the a Kabara campaign was in response to the question, "How would you run a campaign in Kabara?" So I wrote that idea. Uh, the article on an ed- on the edge of hope is then me sort of saying, "Okay, so I did it, and this is sort of how I did it." Uh, and Lizard Dreams basically is talking very specifically about the lizard folk of Kabara and what makes them unique. Yeah, so why don't we dive into the topic here? Mm-hmm. So, what is Kabara for those who for those people who are basically new to the setting, or maybe have not visited outside of the central Corvair? Um, what's Kabara? Well, so Kabara is on the east coast of Corvair, and it's a jungle region that the idea is it's vast, deep, untamed jungle, and that has largely been ignored by the five nations, uh, that humanity and Corvair largely focused on the mostly fertile central region of the continent, which is where you get Brayland, uh, Seer, Thrain, Ondere, etc. And that they largely ignored regions like the Shadow Marches, Droam, or on the opposite side, Lazar Principalities and Kabara. So Kabara is right on the lower east coast, and it is, again, sort of deep, heavy jungle. Now, uh, during the last war, you had people who basically were from the Five Nations but wanted to get away from the war. 
the idea is you had a sort of pacifist movement saying, we just want to leave this behind. And so they went to Gabara, knowing that it was considered unclaimed territory, and established the nation of New Galifar, which we'll get to later, uh, but also in the process discovered, oh, there's a population of lizard folk here, and also that there's a lot of dragon shards. <laughs> and so then at the end of the war, you have this question of first off, well, there is this colony, which is actually, if I recall correctly, I think it's recognized as a thronehold nation. I should have made sure of that. Uh, but, you know, it was recognized and... It also is now a huge source of dragon shards, which is a very important resource. And so the idea is both of those things make it an interesting place to explore. So, you know, if we rewind the clock all the way back to 2000. X. 2003 <laughs> 2003 mm-hmm. um and you're sat at the development table and and, and you are uh, designing um Kabara with the rest of the uh, uh team working on the initial campaign setting so what were you sort of setting out to do when you you put it together as 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 we know it today so so certainly that's the point is when you look at Corvair uh you know, sort of every nation has some general purpose. You know, Thrain explores a theocracy. Andare is a more magical society. Eldine is a place to really get into primal magic. Um, so each nation does sort of do something. And Kabara, um, you know, had two sort of basic uh, aspects. One of the first ones was we knew from the start that we wanted, and it's honestly something we haven't developed as much as as we might have. We wanted the idea that dragon shards were a vital resource for the magical economy. And that Kabara, in a sense, it's it's where all the oil is. You know, it's supposed to be this sort of this is a a largely undeveloped region that holds a vital important resource. Just because this is all about again drawing inspiration from our own world. And we've seen what happens when, whether it's oil, whether it's gold, uh, when you have a region that has something people want. And so, you know, from the start, the idea was to explore that shard rush, you know, the sort of gold rush mentality, and very much to be able to play out the, the classic Western is a form of pulp adventure. And it's basically that people going to the edge of civilization uh, to try and make their fortune. And so that was definitely a big piece of Kabara was to say that in a sense, it's mini Zendrick. It is, uh, you don't have to travel across the sea, but it is this region that is largely unknown that has a thing people want, but it's off on the frontier and outside the influence of the five nations. Um, and beyond that, there was also the point of, Hey, everything has a place in Eberron or we try to make it there. And lizard folk are, have been a part of D and D. And so that was one place to say, we decided early on that we didn't want the lizard folk to just be like part of the five nations. We wanted to keep them as a more sort of alien and unique culture. And so we said, well, they're going to have this place. And part of why they aren't that closely integrated into the five nations is because there hasn't been a lot of contact with them, that they are sort of a mysterious force in the shadows. Wayne? 
One of the reasons I, I feel that, you know, when I was playing 3.5 and fourth edition, that Kabara never came up. And, mm-hmm. you know, early on, I don't think you could have pointed at Kabara and been like, oh, yeah, that's what, where it is. Mm-hmm. It was because one of the things you mentioned was it has a lot of similarities to Zendrick, Absolutely. where as Zendrick is this crawling area full of ruin, ruins, ruins and, and all that stuff. And it's a big jungle and, and you get lost. You had that sort of same idea in Kabara. And I don't think it came across to me went back when I was playing um, back then, like 15 years ago, that there was this other thing I was talking about, the gold rush. Right. Or whatever. I, I'm not American, right? Sure, so I don't, sure. No, I absolutely. Don't know much, I, and I'm, you know, I'm not as, as familiar with that. So I think that's one of the things that a lot of people maybe in the same situation have gotten confused and being like, why is there another jungle for me to explore? Right. Uh, well, and, in real life, there are more, more than one jungle. Um, <laughs> but to understand that there's a different feel for this. Now, we will talk about, we'll talk more about Zendrick at, at some future date, I'm sure. But when we're talking about this, um, you know, this is still in the same continent and this is still a, it's an exploitable resource area. Right. Um, I, we're going to talk about that in a sec. Um, whereas Zendrick is, this is just for explorers. This is your Indiana Jones area. And, and I think there's two critical points there. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Like I say, Kabar is in many ways mini Zendrick, and uh, Zendrick is vaster and, and deeper. I think it is that point that in Zendrick, by definition, sort of Stormreach is the lone outpost. You know, that Zendrick is this vast, untamed uh, continent. And, you know, it's not just jungle, it's deserts, it's bizarre, you know, arcane wastelands. It's It got drow and thrykeen and dra- giants and, you know, sort of all these different things. It's vast. Kabara, on the other hand, is much smaller. You know, it is just the jungle. Uh, it is a place that essentially is being actively colonized. Whereas no one's actually really going to be able to colonize Zendrick. They can sort of have their little outpost, but they're not taking it over. And those are sort of, if you want to explore that, if you want to get into, for example, the interaction between New Galifar and the lizard folk, this is a place to do that. Um, but also it has that very much it – is, it is literally the frontier of, you know, hop on the train and you can go in the other direction and hit, uh, you know, hit civilization. Whereas the distance between Zendrick and, uh, you know, Corvair is, is obviously more vast. So it does hit a lot of those same basic themes, but it does have that. It's both closer to civilization and smaller uh, whereas Zendrick is intentionally sort of vast and trackless, and it's never going to be something you could tame. Yeah, I think that's um, at least with Kabara. I think that that the strength of it over Zendrick is because of it's this much smaller conflict, mm-hmm. where you know, as you were saying, in in, in Zendrick, you have basically limitless possibilities for what might come out of the jungle um whereas with kabara you know what you're getting with it i think that allows you to develop your cast and your characters as you're running your game that much more deeply Um, well i i think two aspects of that uh that are interesting is also part of the point to me is the reason i would go to kabara uh in a campaign would be to explore either Hope or New, New Galifar. 
Um, and with New Galifar, which is the kingdom, and we'll talk about this a little more in just a moment, it is the point that it's a tiny kingdom. It's a growing kingdom. If your players are serving the king, you are like the champions of this realm in a way that as low-level characters, you can't really be in a nation like Brayland. Um, by contrast, hope. The whole point of hope is that uh, it is sort of, there's there's no structure to it. Uh, and that it's it's what compels me about hope. What I wrote about in those articles is not just saying you are having one adventure here. It's saying you are founding a village here. And like you, this is the story of this town and that that is a story that doesn't generally work in Zendrick because Zendrick isn't a place that you expect to be able to maintain a town. Um, Kabara lets us get that experience of we are trying to carve something out here uh, on the edge of things. And that's a different story from Zendrick, which is much more usually about exploring sort of grand lost forgotten or never encountered things you know kabara zendrick uh, is where you run into the golden city of the abil and we're basically never going to talk about them again once you leave whereas kabara once you start dealing with the cold sun federation that's the story <laughs> you know we're not just going to forget about them and move on now uh, I should say moving on because, you know, we are sort of delving into our later topics. So we might as well we'll move with that. One of the things that is a factor is that um, we did certainly evolve Kabara between third and fourth edition. In third edition, you know, part of the reason, as you were saying, Wayne, that you didn't jump on things is uh, that, you know, it, it's not as clearly developed in third edition, we didn't have a whole lot of information about even things like the Shard Rush. Those two articles that I wrote that we put in the links, part of the first one of those is specifically talking about the Shard Rush and why Dragon Shards are important. And the second one is talking more about uh, the different um, cultures there. And also we had to change things because of the introduction of the Dragonborn in fourth edition or the expansion, I should say, you know, transformation of the dragonborn. Uh, and we'll talk about those more specifically later, but it is certainly a point of Kabara in a sense is something that evolved and is very different today than it was uh, in the original ECS. Yeah. I, th I think thinking on that point, you can imagine, or at least, you know, when I, when I went back to reading some of these books to prepare for today, um, the original campaign setting, the third edition one, um, and some of the splat books in, in third edition as well, so say the Player's Guide to Eberron, um, read very much from a perspective of um, this is Kabara as um, a settler from the Five Nations, knows mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, so it presents the, um, the lizard folk, uh, for example, as this unknown primal culture they're coming out of the jungle and they're wrecking our you know newly founded villages right um, and then in fourth edition as you say you know those those two dragon art uh, dungeon articles um in particular open up the other side of that equation much more and um right it's 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 easy to see it as a retcon but i think it's more that a previously unexplored section of the law finally got some attention 
um, because we're only human and, you know, no one can write everything. Um, and gave character to the lizard folk and the dragonborn then at the time. Um, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And that's exactly the point is, is as you said, the previous stuff was written from a very human centered standpoint mm -hmm. and in part written as this is what your typical player character coming to Kabara would know. Uh, whereas as you said, when we had more time, when we had more words to work with, that was always the point of me of with any piece of world design. It's always, how does this actually make sense? What is the logic behind here? And we just hadn't had the opportunity to actually really consider lizard folk culture uh, or what drove them. And fourth edition was a chance to actually try and make Kabara in a sense, make sense uh, in a way that it didn't really before. Um, but shall we hop into some specific aspects of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in, in Kabara, there's, they're basically three major nations um, or major areas Regions. that we're going to yeah, deal with. Certainly. Four, mm -hmm. four, yeah. Um, and of course they come from, you're looking at them from very, very different standpoints, right? We've got, you know, we've got uh, New Galifar, we've got Hope, mm -hmm. we've got the Lizard Folk kingdoms or the Lizard Folk. I don't want to say kingdoms, yeah, sorry, I definitely. used the wrong word here. Yeah. And, um, and sort of the dragonborn as well, and and I know in, in fourth edition, obviously the dragonborn got got roped into the the lizard folk, but obviously the, we've got a different uh, we've got a different understanding. Yeah, and now. I can definitely explain why that happened. Yeah. So, but let's let's like as we said, I mean, third edition said you know you're you're probably explorers uh, from from uh, from the nations. First couple first couple places you're going to go to are New Galifar or Hope. So, I mean. What what are we looking at here? New Galifar. Someone decided to plant a, a city or a town uh, in the middle of a jungle and hope it survives. Right. What's going on here? And and basically, you know, the two well, each region really, you know, serves a different story purpose. It's the question of what you're trying to do with it. So New Galifar is the 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 actual nation that's there. Uh, and New Galifar was established um, by those settlers who left during the last war. And part of the idea is these were people saying, we reject the last war. We, we don't want our nations fighting. Uh, so we are going off and we're starting a new Galifar where we're all united off here in this corner. And unfortunately, that turned out to be a lot harder than people thought. Um, but... Part of what is relevant about that is you have this tiny kingdom that is trying to hold true to the principles of old Galifar, but it is very small. And it is a place where you can definitely explore. Another place you can do this is the Lazarus Principalities as well. But that same idea of we want to see what happens when you have a tiny struggling nation. Uh, it is first off is on territory that let's face it, you know, they've, they've claimed uh, with questionable uh, right. And we'll come to that later. Um, so first you have that whole question of trying to reconcile things with the lizard folk. Uh, you have that point that one of the things you can explore in new Galifar is their uh, sort of, are they going to have an alliance with Raedra? Uh, and just that there's a lot of room for 
decisions to have a very big impact because it's a very small nation. If they were to go to war with Valinar, for example, it would be devastating in a way that it for Brayland or Karnath, they're too big. You know, it's not going to have that kind of impact. Like I said, if you do the head of state patron and your your uh, patron is King Sebastes, like you are probably the champions of New Galifar. And it lets you be it's it's the small pond aspect of this, of uh, it lets your actions have a much bigger impact, especially since this is a nation that's only decades old than something like Brayland that has been around for depending how you measure it, you know, 2000 years, you know, um, and and so it lets you explore that sort of evolution uh Dwayne, thoughts i mean you there's the thing that you said is basically this is a even though kabara is this big big area i mean it's, it's quite large it's not all like mm-hmm. yeah if they go to war with valinar the you know the valinar they're not gonna bring the they can't bring their horses in here it's like i'm just saying i'm just saying four time. war bands could pretty much just take yeah. out new galifar you know? Pretty much, pretty much, yep. and I, I think that's I think that's one of the things that uh, I think that's one of the major differences we're talking about when you talk about this versus uh, Zendrik. In Zendrik, you you are just explorers, mm-hmm. but here you could be defending an entire nation. Your third level characters, fourth level characters, you could be defending this entire nation because this is they've got nothing. They they've got you know escapees from the war, and they've got they've got refugees. All, all these things, and you're they're trying to establish something, and it's a very, very, you know, it's a fledgling. I like to use the word of fledgling civilization here. And, you know, you you know what everything is, but you know, you try to you try to get uh, you you try to get uh, someone to come in here. It's it's much more difficult. No, and and definitely uh, the point is that I haven't actually run a new Galifar campaign, but if I did, I would very much identify two or three other noble families and say, and the balance of power between these is huge. You know, if you piss off count such and such, that's a major deal here because there's only three other nobles here. Uh, Imogen? Um, Yeah. Well, you just uh, beautifully (laughs) introduced what I was going to say there, which was um, the balance of the nobility in New Galifar Mm -hmm. is critical. Because mm-hmm. King Sebastes is trying to set up this nation or, you know, is setting up this nation as a feudal one. Yep. Um, and there's all this, quote unquote, unclaimed territory. Mm-hmm. So when you're the champion of the king, when you do great deeds, you defend the nation, that, you know, you might be granted land, you might be granted titles much more easily than you might in the five nations. Um and suddenly you're a power player in the politics as well. Um, so you're not necessarily just, uh, um, you know, working between a couple of noble families who wield all that much, uh, so much power because of this, you know, the small fry nature of it, but you are one of those players as well, or you could be. And, and that's very much the point to me is if you want to do a story like Game of Thrones 
Kabar is actually a better place to do it than the Five Nations because the Five Nations going back to war, it's huge. It involves, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It's a major deal. Whereas in Kabara, a clash between three noble families, they're the three noble families. You know, like you said, if you are granted uh, a fiefdom, like you are now your number four. You know, that basically it is a place and because it is off on the edge of the things, Braylon doesn't care when your two noble families go to war. So you can do, as I said, that Game of Thrones style of political conflict in a way that really doesn't work uh, in the midst of the Five Nations. So so that's, you know, that's New Galifar and that's an important aspect on there. And then on the other side, you have hope. Um, the idea of hope is that New Galifar was settled by people who wanted to build a nation, who wanted to rebuild Galifar. Uh, along the way, they found dragon shards. And then other people said, wait, there's dragon shards over there? Sign me up. And that hope isn't a nation. There is no ruler of hope. It is a region in which people are just setting up villages and setting up, you know, staking claims and starting to dig. Um, part of that is it means it is the place where your local sheriff is the law. Like, you know, and if that's you, it's up to you to maintain order. Um, and so if you read all those articles, you know, it's certainly a place you can just drop by to visit. But to me, it's very much uh, when we're talking New Gallifer, we're talking Game of Thrones and that political conflict. When we're talking, uh, you know, hope, we're talking Deadwood. It's the, this is your village. You're all it's got. And if bandits show up, you've got to deal with them because there's no one else. Um, and likewise, if there's trouble with the lizard folk, you've got to figure out, well, what's going on? You know, and and are we to blame? You know, what's the problem here? Um, so hope was always very much intended to sort of capture that flavor of the the classic Western. You know, it is the village where you got to look out for yourself. You've got people just trying to basically build something from nothing. Um, and one of the things I would point out with it is also, it's very much the idea where it's a place where humanity does not know what it's messing with. That, uh, part of the idea of Kabara is because it's largely been left alone. It is a place where you have relics of the age of demons that people have not yet sort of, people don't know that this is a place you should leave alone. You know what not to touch. And uh, that that means that our foolish settlers and foolish adventurers can very much come in and break things uh, that will then need to be fixed. Wayne? I like one of the points of this is that in the rest of, you know, one of the points of the rest of the nations was everything is covered in Dakani ruins. You find a ruin, it's probably Dakani in, in nature. Yeah. But here... It wasn't the Dakani. Now you're going into something much more, oh, such much more safe. It's from the Age of Demons. Yep. Uh, this is something from an overlord. This is, uh, you know, uh, those kind of things. You know, 
there's a, an amped level of danger and it's sort of like you have nowhere to turn to and, and <laughs> you have no hope of figuring this out but let's keep digging with that shovel there and see what happens i've always kind of liked that when I, I read through this especially about in kabara in general was that there is this it, there's this you know man versus wild idea mm-hmm. because it's not you it's not you going to explore this area it's the wild is attacking you and you are trying to defend this little piece of land that you've sort of dug a hole in, not realizing that you dig any further down and there's an overlord that's going to eat you. I mean, it's got that nice, it's got that nice, like desperation feel. Um, you know, it, it's, it's got a kind of that same uh, feel as like the, the avatar movie or the, um, I was just thinking about this book the other day and I can't remember what the name is, but that, that kind of like, that kind of like desperation feel. And and I kind of like that. I kind of I kind of like that that thing. And again, as we're talking about hope, we're talking about that western yeah. the western idea, you know, the 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 gunslinger, uh, wandslingers and whatnot, but also carnivorous plants and uh and the the the, <laughs> the savage and yeah. I use that with air quotes. And, <laughs> savage people coming after you. And I think that's an excellent point about the Dakani ruins is that the thing is, generally speaking, it's not that dangerous to poke around in Dakani ruins. And people have built, most of the major cities are built on Dakani foundations. And, you know, I'm not saying it's absolutely safe, but I'm saying, well, the Dakani weren't binding ancient, terrible evil. You know, uh, that was gatekeepers. Um, but so that is the point <laughs> that you, it, it makes sense that you have humans saying, oh, we've been poking around ruins forever. It's never been a problem. And you're like, yeah, not these ruins. You know, that again, it is that idea that people are out of their depth and that they're dealing with things they don't understand. And I will say what I've loved is I have run at this point, I think, three different campaigns following this this Edge of Hope model of dropping people in a village, you know, starting the village and and the way that, you know, that works and uh, again, please check the articles because I don't want to go too deep into that. Uh, but part of the way I've always run these campaigns is to start by saying, you tell me what your character's important connection to the town is. That, you know, uh, someone is the sheriff, someone is the preacher. And when there's disorder in town, you got to round up a posse and handle it. Because, you know, again, no one else does. Um, and so it's your village. And what I love is in every three, all three of these campaigns, within the first two sessions, the players have basically screwed up something important in the region without knowing (laughs) it. And uh, that, you know, a number of sessions later, they'll say, oh, we were stupid. And so it was, it was always very satisfying to me that I didn't even have to sort of push them down the wrong direction. They immediately, you know, cut the wrong wire or removed the sacred burial, uh, you know, wards, uh, because yeah. Yep. Oh, and I'm not just saying, Keith, you're pretty much describing every single, every single adventuring part of that start. That's what I want to do. Oh, there's a big, a big gem on the door. Let's pull that right off. <laughs> Let's uh, pull that. So, oh, that's the, head, that's the head of Vecna. Let me try cutting my head off and replacing exactly. it. Exactly. And, and so satisfying. Uh, and so I think with that, it's time to now talk about the lizard folk. So, mm-hmm. so this is the point is what are the things people are messing with that they don't understand? 
And, um, you know, so lizard folk have always been a part of Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, one of the things in sort of placing them in Kabar that we wanted to do was to make them different, was to say, we don't just want them to be humans with scaly skin. We want them to feel like a distinctly alien culture that, you know, part of the point is the the humans of Kabar do not understand them and they don't understand uh, the humans. And um, the idea was there before, but again, as you said, Imogen, it, wasn't really made clear in in third edition so fourth edition was a chance to really go into more detail third edition we you know we had the basic stuff there we talked about the poison dust the cold sun and you know we said that rashok the the this was this ancient dragon that basically in kabara you have a city called hakatorvek that dates back to the age of demons and that there is a dragon named rashok who uh who layers there and has been corrupted by it. Wayne, did you have a point? Well, I mean, one of the things is that like we have, we have fifth edition lizard folk now. Mm-hmm. And if you read that entry, not the, not the monster manual entry, but if you read the entry f- as the race details, and it comes from Volo's guide, mm-hmm. um, the first subheading is alien minds. Yep. Like the nature of this, this creature is not, is not supposed to be warm-blooded humanoid. Like that's not that's not how it, it literally says. It's not how they think. It's not how they act. Um, they have more limited emotional uh, exposure. Limited, ex- I, I think, uh, use a limited emotional life than humanoids. Um, the feelings largely revolve around fear, aggression, and pleasure. Now, as a player, as a as a as a character concept, and just understanding that it is a very foreign thing for us to do, and and rightly so to under try to write something like that but as a dm you've got to be able to try to expand upon that and we're talking about dm stuff you know if you can i think this is the most useful thing is if you can boil down a, a culture and I, i'm not this is not being me being prejudiced or anything like that this is just as a as a tactic if you can boil it down to fear aggression and pleasure you can really really make this this idea of of this nation, it's very solid in your mind, but to the player characters, to the, your players in their party, it might be completely confusing because they don't know how to to react because they don't have that 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 range and scale of emotions. Well, and and again, when we get into the lizard folk of Kabara, there's a whole second factor that they don't have to interact with it well, as well, and. Uh, but yeah, but that is part of the point is really wanting to say that that reptiles and mammals are fundamentally different, that we want them to feel fundamentally different. And so, as I said, you know, we said in third edition that Rashok is the corrupted dragon guardian of the city of Hakatorvek, uh, but that he is trapped in this city. Uh, so he's this incredibly powerful force, but he's, you know, half fiend, he's trapped in the city. But we didn't really say why, what was he doing there in the first place? What was his connection to the Poison Dusk? And so what we get into in the fourth edition lore is saying that Hakatorvek is the, the sort of focus point of uh, one of the prisons of the overlords, an overlord called Mesviric or the Cold Sun. And that Hakatorvek is very similar in some ways to the Pit of Five Sorrows in uh, Argonessen, 
which is the prison of Tiamat. And we have always talked about with the the Pit of Five Sorrows that the the guardians become corrupted through their service. What we've said with Rashak is that he has been corrupted by the presence of Mesveric, but that he's essentially now serving like a cork in a wine bottle. And like, this is why he hasn't been replaced. You know, this is why they haven't taken him away is he's serving a function. Uh, but it's still the case that he has become a sort of vessel for this ancient evil. Um, so meanwhile, the idea is that Masveric, uh was bound, you know, the, all the prisons of the overlords are different. And all the overlords are different. Miss Verick is sort of tied to, to, you know, the fear of things that slither in the shadows and venomous creatures. Um, and what we said is that part of his prison involves a whole network, sort of a similar thing to the way Rakhtal Kesh is in a sort of shattered prison. With Miss Verick, they spread out a whole bunch of dragon shards that are charged with radiant energy. And are just spread around, and these sort of disrupt his power and influence. And these are called dawn shards. And uh, this was done by the Kowadal back in the Age of Demons. And so, uh, part of the point is you have this this you know rich deposits of dragon shards, but in particular these special dragon shards that. Uh, people are very excited to find because they've got all this extra energy, not realizing that, oh, but they're serving a purpose. Uh, meanwhile, the Quattle also implanted in the lizard folk, who are one of the oldest species, uh, basically instructions. You know, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you maintain Ms. Virick's prison. And they did this in the form of a shared dream. And so the idea is that the lizard folk uh, call themselves what translates roughly to the Cold Sun Federation, uh, and that they are guided by dreams that tell them basically fight the poison dusk, watch out for Ms. Virick, leave the Don shards alone. And this has a number of different effects. Uh, the first is the idea that one reason it's hard for that to communicate with them is they all have an absolute set of cultural references that they all know uh, because every time they go to sleep, they get these stories and it is incomprehensible to them that any creature could not know these stories because everyone knows these stories. You know, they've never had contact with a different society and so first off, it's just that idea that, you know, uh, I can refer to something and I just expect you to understand the reference because you know what it is. But also it's the idea that they can't understand people not knowing what they know. In particular, the idea that you leave the Don Shards alone and that the only people who don't leave the Don Shards alone are the corrupted agents of the Cold Sun, which is to say the Poison Dusk. And so thus, when humans show up and start messing with the Dawn Shards, clearly they are agents of the Poison Dusk. That is the only reason you would do that. And so that's where you're getting part of this idea of this mixed up communication between them is because it is difficult for them to comprehend 
uh, a species not knowing what they know because their knowledge is sort of a part of them. Wayne? Yeah, I mean, this is just what part of this is just comes down to context. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever if you've ever spoken to a kid or you've tried to tell a joke uh, where the person doesn't have doesn't have the context to understand it, um, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's just like, of course it's this. Um, you and- know, who 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 else? Or if you ever had a, a child speak to you in their language, yeah. um, they don't have the con a lot of them don't have the concept to understand that you don't understand that language and you're just like, I don't get it. Right. I've always found that interesting for the specifically for the the, the Cold Sun Federation yeah. was I think one of the things is without reading too far into mm-hmm. it, and again, monolithic right. you know, societies, it's those are the litter, lizard folk. They attack you um while you're trying to steal stuff because they consider it holy, but not understanding why certain things are a certain way. Right. Um, and getting a and, little more and deep into it. And I, and I know I've seen mm-hmm. you've got you get this question you get this question quite a bit, like in different ways. Like you know, explain this, explain this. What's the poison dust? What's I, I've seen that those questions pop up, and you explaining it several times mm-hmm. over and over. And, and and this is the point: is it's not just they consider it holy. It's they're like, no. If you take that away, you are literally trying to unleash the darkness. You must be an agent of evil. Because that is the only reason you remove that thing. And, and part of the idea is what makes it tricky is you talked about the child with their own language, is that this is the issue is there's no easy way for outsiders to, to learn these things because they're not written down and they're not even told. They're not even spoken aloud because they don't have to be. That they have a storyteller who tells them the stories every night. And so it's it's back to that sort of concept of their way of sharing knowledge is just fundamentally alien to humans. And that goes in both directions. They don't understand how do you operate, you know, when you don't have uh, this system of knowledge. And so that's the point is, to me, what's interesting is essentially having a first contact situation. And, and this has sort of come up of, of uh, well, you know, couldn't they have figured this out decades ago or something? I'm like, they could have, but where's the story in that? You know, what I love is in those campaigns I've run, the players run in, they screw everything up, the lizard folk attack them, and that it is the players having to work through and figure out, oh, wow, yeah, actually, I get why they're attacking us. Like it makes sense that they think we're agents of evil and then having to basically learn how to communicate with them and learn, you know, learn these lessons themselves. And to me, that's the cool part is, is dealing that interaction with a fundamentally different culture. Imogen. Yeah. And I think um, that, the stage as far as the sort of default assumption at 998YK or whatever um, is that uh, the the books mentioned that, uh, you know, this conflict between the the lizard folk and and say New Galafara hope has been ongoing for a long time, but recently parts of the Cold Sun Federation and, you know, those those, uh, settler nations have been starting to make contact so you don't necessarily, as a DM, have to place your players in opposition if you want to play um, 
a campaign that's focused more on building that bridge, it is the perfect time to do that. Well, and and I think if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, that actually generally the interaction between New Galifar and the Cold Sun Federation isn't that hostile, that the Poison Sun are hostile and that there's been some recent hostilities, but that it was largely fair, which is essentially the point is that the Cold Sun or the, you know, I call them the Cold Sun, uh, but the Cold Sun Federation they don't have concepts of of claiming territory or things mm-hmm. like that. When the humans show up, they basically said, sure, great. You know, welcome to the neighborhood. We assume you're going to follow all the rules because everyone knows the rules. It's and like a it's not till they start breaking the rules that there's yeah. suddenly uh, trouble. When? Well, again, I'm reminded of that Star Trek episode uh, from uh, The Next Generation. Yes, <clears throat> Or gets, or gets, you know, transported to the surface, and they're like trying to fight this one thing together, and it's like I'm I'm speaking words you understand, but not in, yep. uh, not in a language that you understand. So it's like trying to like it, it's there. There's some of that going mm-hmm. on here where it's like I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I know that you don't quite understand, but I'm trying to explain it to you. But you're just like going, what you want me to kill you? You want me to fight you? What do you want me to do? Sort of thing. Okay. Um, and that's a very good uh, example to call out here. So it's a Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Darmok. And it is that exact principle that they run into an alien species that primarily communicates using essentially metaphors. And that, you know, one of the examples they give is Juliet on her balcony. And if I say that, anyone who knows Romeo and Juliet says, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. That's like a metaphor of her standing and waiting and longing. Uh, but if you don't know Romeo and Juliet, it means nothing. And, yeah, and it's that idea of, uh, I use an example in Lizard Dreams and I can't remember it, but you know, that, that I might say, oh, we do not embrace Dakar. And what that means is, oh, we fear treachery, you know, or something. We're not going to make a deal with a traitor. Mm-hmm. But again, and, and I assume you know that because everyone knows that story. But, uh, but if you don't, translation doesn't help because you don't have the context. So yeah, Darmok is a great thing to check out if you want to to get some some idea on this. Um, But basically the whole point is that that's the thing, is that the the Cold Sun Federation has no innate hostility because they generally assume everyone, you know, all people are united in their opposition to the darkness. It's only when you start breaking the rules that they assume, oh, if you're breaking the rules, you are the poison dust. And that flips us around the poison dusk, the idea is the human, the settlers show up and say, oh, there's a whole bunch of lizard folk. These people are mean. These people are good. The Cold Sun Federation, they assume are a bunch of tribes tied to the Cold Sun, not understanding that the actual definition of their name is the Federation against the Cold Sun, that they are the people opposed to the Cold Sun, which is Mesviric, uh, and that the poison dusk aren't a different tribe. They are beings who have been corrupted by Mesviric and that they come from a number of different cultures, but they have been basically corrupted by the darkness and they are trying to get rid of the Dawn Shards. They are trying to cause trouble. Um, and But again, people don't understand the difference between them. And so the Cold Sun Federation is very ruthless in dealing with the Poison Dusk because they're just like, yeah, there's no hope for those people. Wipe them out. They're like bugs. 
Um, but again, humans don't understand, and which is why when humans start doing bad things, it doesn't occur to the lizard folk that, oh, they just might not know what they're doing. The answer is, oh, they've been corrupted by the, you know, they become poison dusk and, and they need to be wiped out. Um, but we should probably move on to talk about the dragonborn. Anything else before we do? No, let's do dragonborn. Yeah. So... (laughs) All this was this idea of we had the lizard folk, we had, you know, the poison dusk, we had the, um, these different concepts. And then fourth edition comes along. And in addition to wanting to talk more about the lizard folk, fourth edition reinterpreted the dragonborn and introduced them as a player race. And so with fourth edition, following that principle that there's a place for everything in Eberron, uh, in creating the Eberron 4th edition campaign book, one of the questions was, where's that place for Dragonborn? We want to call out that place so that they have they have a clear role when you play one of them. And um, one of the things was I didn't want to change the existing lore. I didn't want to suddenly say, oh, there's always been Dragonborn in Thrain. You know, or that Dragonborn have always had, uh, you know, a major role in the five nations that you've just never heard of before. But one of the things uh, we said is, well, wait a second, we've got Kabara. Uh, we decided that the Dragonborn did have origins in Arganesson, that they were sort of foot soldiers through the light of Sybaris. Uh, we knew that Arganesson had established an outpost, you know, with Hakatorvek and Rashak. And so basically we took the idea of saying well, what if the humans literally have failed to identify the difference between these people? That they have been dealing with both lizard folk and dragonborn, and they're so stupid that they just don't really pay attention. And the argument, people will be like, well, one is tails and one doesn't have tails. And I'm saying, yeah, but the point is that the settlers don't care. That, you know, what we say is their scales. You know, kobolds, troglodytes, lizard folk, dragonborn, so what? They're all scales. And part of the point is that's terrible, but also humans are terrible. Um, and, and so this is part of the idea of saying that there is a nation of dragonborn. Uh, what we established from that was to say they came there with Rashok. Uh, there was, you know, garrisons of soldiers there to just support him, uh, that they basically getting bored, built an empire that they expanded West. They clashed with the Dakani. And so this gives us, you know, a little more interesting stuff of some time. You could go back to Dakani history to explore their, their conflict with the dragonborn. Uh, but that when Rashak was ultimately corrupted by Masvirik and the poison dusk were unleashed, that this was sort of their equivalent of the Zoriat incursion, that suddenly they're fighting their own kind. There's this spreading corruption. They had, you know, they're, they had to abandon their empire, pull back. Uh, and since then have been just sort of fighting to contain the influence of the poison dusk and um, Rashak. And this ties to the idea that humans don't know what they're putting their foot in. That this situation has been stable, but it's only been stable because of the tireless work of both the lizard folk and the dragonborn. That they've been fighting this threat 
for, uh, you know, I'm doing all these things to contain it. And so this is where when stupid sellers come in and, you know, crack open the mine or, you know, do whatever they do, that they are breaking things that have been held together with duct tape for, you know, thousands of years. So the Dragonborn, basically you have, it's a little bit like the Gashkala on the demon wastes. The idea is as Dragonborn, you are from a culture that has been essentially fighting demons, you know, sort of your whole life, that you have an important sacred duty. At the same time, there is that idea that some of them have, you know, more so than the lizard folk. The lizard folk don't really change because they're guided by these dreams. Uh, the dragonborn aren't. And so the dragonborn can be curious. The dragonborn can react to humanity. They can say, wait, this is a new situation. How do we respond to this? Uh, and in particular, the idea that dragonborn can say, wow, I want to know more. I want to go out there into the world and explore. Or that a group of dragonborn could go and be mercenaries in the, the last war. And so I did play a Dragonborn character in fourth edition. And part of my thing was exactly that, that I was sort of following uh, a, you know, sort of quest uh, and had had served briefly in the last war and was just hanging around with the people I fought with. Uh, image. Um, I was just thinking the, 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 you know, along those lines, the Dragonborn are quite useful perhaps mm-hmm. that's the wrong word but they, they occupy this this position where they very much understand a lot of the motivations between uh be, well for the lizard folk and the human settlers uh, right they're so the they bridge are between certainly yeah right they understand what it is to take territory they understand you know teaching your children things because they have to yep. but they also understand from the lizard folk point of view the importance of the dawn shards and the everlasting fight against the poison dusk. Right. Um, and that plays out in, you know, across these factions and you get, and you get things like, um, for example, the dragonborn, uh, do have sort of diplomatic contact with new mm-hmm. Galifar. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, there was a dragonborn representative with Kabara at the treaty of Thronehold right. or at the signing of the treaty of Thronehold. And, um, and, and that's exactly the idea that the dragonborn are less alien. They are more like mm-hmm. us. And and part of the point of that was to say that hey, you want to play a reptilian humanoid, play a dragonborn. That's easy. Uh, and whereas with the lizard folk, we wanted to do something very different, mm-hmm. which is not to say you can't play a lizard folk if you want to play a lizard folk. You know, there are various ways to discuss that. But as I said, it was the point from a story perspective, we wanted to do something fundamentally different with the dragonborn and the lizard folk. And like you Mm -hmm. said, because of that, it really does make the dragonborn essentially in that role where they could be the bridge that they, they understand a lot of concepts that are very alien to the lizard folk. But as you said, they also understand the lizard folk better than the humans do. Um, so, so again, if I was running a new Galifar campaign, I would absolutely play up the importance of that. And if you had a lizard folk, a not lizard folk, a dragonborn PC in the group, I would really play that up as an important part of their role. Yeah. Um, anyhow, we're, we're running, uh, short on time. Uh, what else do y'all want to talk about? Well, before we kind of exit this area, we should definitely talk about House Tarash. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a 
you know, here's the the one uh, the one megacorp <laughs> that has kind of entered into th- this area. Arash uh, has entered the chat. You know, <laughs> yes, basically, and you know, we are talking about a. I don't know if the word is best imperialistic mm-hmm. or uh, predatory mm-hmm. uh, corporation that says, yeah, you, you might be, a, a, you know, you might be thrown, you might be part of the treaty of thronehold, but uh, there's not a lot of laws out here and no one's going to see what we're doing. So let's go out there. And we're the, you know, we're expected to, we're expected to find dragon shards. Like that's what, that's part of what our house does. So, I mean, they have this much, I, I feel like, Sometimes House Trash is the more innocent house because it's the newer one, and you know they're they're kind of relegated out into the the middle of nowhere. But this this is the area where they are not right. At least to my feeling, is they're not the innocent one. They're the they're the aggressors here, mm-hmm. and they they're while they can't claim the territory, they're going to claim the spoils of this territory, whether someone likes it or not. And and certainly as someone who's run a number of hope campaigns, that is generally the role that they fill to me is that, oh, you know, here's your nice little mining village with a bunch of little independent folks. And here's the Rashk coming in because, you know, oh, you found some Dawn shards. Well, they're going to move 300 people in here and uh, strip mine the whole place, you know, sort of thing that, that they're the, the company you know, if you will. And I like them, you know, of all the dragon marked houses, uh, I see them as, as one of the more sympathetic houses, but it is that idea that part of their thing is they're ambitious, that this is how they gain power is by controlling dragon shards. And, and so it's basically in hope, which is this largely, uh, you know, this region that, that again, most of the dragon marked houses aren't out there at all. And there is no vast overriding sort of system of law that they are just the most powerful force. And they certainly don't care. You know, they are happy to strip mine everything and destroy and tear down, uh, you know, sacred wards and things like that. And so to me, they're just often a chance to sort of play up the it's not that they're evil, it's that they're greedy. And playing to that, they're going to do stupid things that that could cause, you know, could have disastrous consequences release, you know, in a way, I think you can totally look at it as the movie Aliens, that they are Waylon yutani you know, they're the people who are just coming in and saying, sure, how can we weaponize this, this alien life form? That seems like a good idea. <laughs> and, and so they are poking their nose in places they don't understand. When they do find something, their reaction is, how can we make money off of it? And that all of these can have terrible consequences, even if, again, they're not necessarily, you know, they're not the Lords of Dust or uh, the uh, the Dreaming Dark. Uh, but they can still unleash terrible things. Yeah, I said. So basically, if your player characters don't uh, screw something up already, you can have screwed up for them, and the for characters them. have to come and fix yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyhow, I mean, I think the you know the thing we should say before we we pop out is again just what Kabara does. You know, this is all uh, sort of about what is what role does it serve for game master you know why do you want to go there Uh, a lot of what we've talked about are what makes it interesting as a basis for a campaign whether that's new galifar with the more sort of politically driven uh expanding nation or with hope with the sort of starting something small and trying to help it thrive uh 
with either of them, you can generally just explore the concept of the frontier, which is like Droam, uh, like Stormreach. This is a place hope is beyond the reach of the normal law. So it's a place you can get fugitives. It's a place you can get bandits who are uncontrolled. You know, So if you are just passing through, you could be trying to find someone who's fled there. Uh, alternately, it is a place, again, where many of the ruins have not been explored, where the Age of Demons has a strong effect. And uh, you could be trying to find a particular artifact that, again, no one has dug up. So those are certainly things that can take you out there. For players, one of the basic things that we've said is it's a chance to, it's where you get the lizard folk and the dragonborn. Uh, dragonborn are, to my mind, the much easier path to take. Uh, however, I do talk about player character lizard folk in the Lizard Dreams article. You know, there's certainly ways you can do that driven by their shared mission. Um, and, you know, if you are either of those races, it's the logical place for you to come from. Uh, but you can also play, uh, it's a chance to play that sort of the outsider. You know, I grew up in, in you know, New Galifar. And again, I was always against, my parents fled the war. You know, I didn't have any part of your last war. Or that you're from, you know, you were born in hope. And, you know, again, you're sort of the the smug wanslinger who doesn't know any of your fancy five nations ways. Um, other thoughts? Yeah, I think when you're, when we're thinking about the, the sort of the scales side of things as a player character, mm -hmm. I kind of see it in, in terms of you've got a level of sort of beginner to advanced in a way because you, you have the dragonborn as, you know, quite a human-like culture in many ways. Um, you could also look at the, the, the kobolds, if you want to play, say, a poison dust character who is escaping a corruption, but yes. it still, you know, has a, a relatively um, understandable mindset. And then as you get more advanced, you get to the lizard folk are perfect for the players who want to say, I want to explore an alien mindset. I, I'm not interested in a human. How do how does something completely different think? Um, right. And that should be at the forefront of your mind, I think, whenever, whenever you're trying that. Um, yeah, and, and I yeah. completely agree with that, that that's the thing, is it can be really interesting to try and play something that is so different from us. And certainly, you know, part of the point is that the the it is a chance to to then decide, are you trying to find a way to, to prevent these cultures from from clashing? You know, can you find some peaceful interaction, you know, between them? Or are you just saying, eh, it's not my problem. I, you know, I'm just going east, west and, and seeking my fortune. And if so, why? <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, shall we wrap things up? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think we covered a lot and, uh, you know, you can always, uh, you can always, uh, send us a message and ask us for more. Uh, next but time. definitely check out the <laughs> um, the articles that are linked. You know, yes. has a lot of information both about running campaigns there uh, and about the lizard folk, as we said. Yeah, yeah, I would certainly recommend those dungeon articles and and then the dragon marks on Keith's blog is as having I think by far the the best information uh, beyond any of the core setting guides. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Okay. Um, well, thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode or leave a review on your favorite podcast service. Um, and you can find all our links to our social media on the website too. So let us know what you think. Um, so join us next time as we blow up the laboratory and explore artifice and arcane sciences uh, in Eberron. And until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>